this afternoon and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and this afternoon, our subject matter is Jesus paid it all. And usually when we have the Lord's Supper, I have a few other words to say about the Lord's Supper. I'm going to say it right now, okay? This message is about remembering what Jesus did and and how he did it for us. So uh, when I'm done with the message, we'll go right into the Lord's Supper. But uh, here you go. Some of you guys uh, must have been talking about a lot of other stuff before church. Now you got to... Oh. Pretty quick for 85 years old. That's what I got to say. Pretty quick. Yeah, that's yours, right? Thanks a lot, Bob. Give your wife the old wadded up one. All right, well... So as soon as we're done, we'll, we're not going to say a lot more about uh, the, the Lord's Supper because uh, that's what this is really all about here in, in Hebrews 10. It's not really the subject, but, but uh, why do we remember the Lord's Supper? We remember it because of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross. Now, uh, our message is Jesus paid it all. And uh, there are many views about salvation. You know that? Many, many views people have about salvation. Some believe, uh, and they teach and practice what we would call a multi-person salvation. Uh, according to their doctrine, a host of people are involved in it. You know, God the Father, He does a part, and then God the Son does a part, and God the Holy Spirit does a part, the Virgin Mary does a part, and the various saints of the past ages do a part, and then the priests do a part, and they themselves do a part. Others even do a part after they die. They say prayers for them, you know. I can't get someone that's already died saved just by praying for them. You know, I think that's when we talk about someone who died, well, our prayers are for them. It's too late. You know, you can pray for their family, you can pray for their friends, you can pray for those who are left behind, but you can't pray for that person who's dead. They're gone. If they trusted Christ, they're in heaven. If they haven't, they're uh, in eternal hell. Some would pay to have masses accomplished on, uh, uh, you know, a mass said uh, in behalf of them. You know, we could go on and on about these multi-person salvation theories. Now, there are those who would say also, no, uh, that's certainly not what we believe, but we would say that what we believe is a two-person salvation. And they would insist that, you know, the Lord does indeed play a part. Namely, he was born of a virgin, he lived a sinless life, he died on the cross to make atonement for sin, then he rose triumphantly from the grave three days and three nights later, at least figuratively, they think. And that action opened the door for them to profess allegiance to him, to live a good life, to help their neighbors, to sacrificially give to the church and other worthy causes, to follow the golden rule, to obey the Ten Commandments, to manifest the principles of the Sermon on the Mount, and hold out faithful to the end. 
That's a two-person salvation. You know, God or Christ does his part and I do my part. Is that what salvation is? Well, the Word of God knows nothing of a multi-person salvation or a two-person redemption. The biblical propitiation is strictly one-man affair. It's a one-man affair. And the one man is not some poor sinner who was born in sin and went astray the day he was born, setting out for himself a life uh, and pulling himself up, so to speak, by his bootstraps. No, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the God of the Son, is God the Son, is the sole provider of this one man salvation. Alvina Hall expressed it well in that familiar song, For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I wash my garments white in blood, in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Now not only do we have a one-man salvation, but it's also a once-for-all salvation. Some think that there, uh, this must be, uh, there must be a repeating of offerings for sin. Uh, in one kind of church, for example, the priest claimed to convert the bread and the wine into an actual body of the blood of Christ and blood of Christ in an elevation of the host. You know, when they lift it up and they think, well, it's being changed into the actual body, the actual blood of Christ. They teach that. They believe that. But they believe in vain. And so they offer him again and again and again and again as a new sacrifice for sin. Others will deny such a miraculous transformation, but they insist, indeed, present in in the act, which they call a sacrament, a means of grace. Now, when we come to the, the Lord's table, we're not, this isn't a means of grace. This isn't a way to get saved. This is remembering what Christ did once for all. See, a lot of ideas about salvation, but a lot of these ideas are not in the Word of God. The Word of God says, for example, in verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many times? Once at Calvary. And then millions and billions of times by priests all over the world? No. Once for all, never to be repeated again. It was P.P. Bliss who taught the people in Dwight L. Moody's great evangelistic congregations to sing, Now are we free, there's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, oh, hear his sweet call. Come, and he saves us once for all. Once for all, oh, sinner, receive it. Once for all, oh, brother, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. So the passage here we have in Hebrews chapter 10, I want us to consider four things. First of all, the failure of the law. The failure of the law. Look at verse 1. It says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Do you notice, first of all, the laws presented the shadow not the substance, it's an illustration, not the image. The law presented the shadow, not the substance, an illustration, not the image. 
And that's what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing back in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. If you'll just hold your place there in Hebrews 10 and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Colossians 2.14, it says, Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made show of them openly, triumphing over them, in it, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of the whole and holy day or of new moon or the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. You know, as a shadow instead of the image. It's a shadow is not, and instead of the image, it can never make those who approach Almighty God on the basis, on this basis, perfect. But here in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, the phrase, the comers thereunto, that's an old English expression that means them that draw nigh or near, expresses the thought of the Greek language there. As the perfection it refers to, this relates to the believer's standing. All who have come to Christ and received His so great salvation are perfect in God's sight. In Him I am justified, that is, seen just as if I had never sinned. Even more, of course, since I am clothed in His righteousness. And this is a law, the position of the law, uh, or that the law could never provide. This is a position that the law could never provide. Instead of making perfect, the law required continual sacrifices over and over again, yet never making the comers thereunto perfect. So the law presented the shadow, not the substance, an illustration, not the image. Secondly, the law provided repetition, not remission. A consciousness of sins, not a cleansing from sins. The law provided repetition, not remission, a consciousness of sins, not a cleansing from sins. Notice the writer saying that the law can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. And it goes on in verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. He's arguing that if the sacrifices of the law had succeeded, they would have ceased, and the worshipers would no longer have a consciousness of sins, a sense of guilt before God. That didn't happen. The sacrifices went on day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, century after century. And the poor people were never burdened down with the consciousness of their terrible sins in the sight of a holy God. I should say they were ever burdened down. We live in a day of tremendous medical advances, do we not? You know, it's amazing how medical community has been able to treat many so-called incurable diseases. Used to be, uh, they couldn't, uh, they couldn't cure a disease. They couldn't do anything for a person. And now, uh, thank the Lord, they, they've made some advances in this way. If your doctor told you yesterday that you had an incurable disease, well, you'd better check with him today because uh, uh, if he's told you that yesterday, today they might have a cure. You know, they've made some advances. 
Uh, they might have discovered something overnight. And since that's true, let me use the physical health to describe the spiritual health situation under the law. Let's suppose I had a dreadful terminal disease. But I learned that science had just discovered some wonder drug, and by taking a prescribed dose four times a day, I would live. And while failure to take it would mean death, as long as I followed the instructions, I would survive. Could I call myself cured because of the medication taken 28 times a week for the rest of my life, holding death at bay? (laughs) That wouldn't be really cured, would it be? But you know, a one-time, once-and-for-all dose would be necessary to be cured. Now, I could hold it back with taking the the so-called cure, but it uh, wouldn't cure it. I think the same principle holds true in the spiritual realm. Unless one dose cured them forever, those under the law could not claim that they had been made perfect. And since they never ceased to offer sacrifices for sins, the law failed to grant them the cure. No remedy could be called a cure unless it did the job once for all. No repercussions, no side effects. So the law presented the shadow, not the substance, an illustration, not the image. The law provided repetition, not remission, a consciousness of sin, not a cleansing from sin. And then thirdly, notice the law proved to be an awakening, not an atonement, a remembrance, but not a removal. Look at verse 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of the sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. The sacrifices under the law resulted in a remembrance of sin. The word remembrance here means an awakening of the mind, a calling to mind, a reminder. That's what we're going to do when we partake of the Lord's table. It's going to be a remembrance. It's going to be uh, uh, awakening our minds to what? The fact that Jesus paid it all. Well, here, the law, rather than removing sins, was just a reminder of the sins. It's a little bit different than the Lord's table, but Paul argued this in Romans 3.20, where he said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The whole law is geared to this one point. Make the sinner conscience of his sin. That's what the law was for. And even worse, the sacrifices he offered failed to take away his sin. Animal blood simply could not remove sin. What stronger words could we find to describe the situation than these of the writer? It is not possible. What was the point then? What was the point of the sacrificial animal blood if it couldn't take away sin? Well, let's look at it this way. Suppose a man borrows $10,000 at the bank, payable at 6% in one year. In 364 days, he doesn't owe anything because the note's not due, right? He's borrowed $10,000, and it's payable in one year. In 364 days, he still doesn't owe it because it's not due. On the 365th day, however... 
When it falls due, he has nothing for which to pay. And so he goes back to the bank and he renews the full amount, principal, plus interest of $600. He does it for another year. Once again, he has nothing to worry about for 364 days. Since he cannot pay at the end of the year either, he goes through the process again. He asks for an extension. He says, can you loan me the uh, $10,000 plus the $600 plus the $600? You know, and and plus more now. Continues this annually over and over and over every year until eventually they say, you know, we would, uh, we would say some rich uncle, Uncle Alfred in our family. I don't know if he ever existed. I think he does. We did find his grave, but he never left us any money. But some rich uncle has pity on him. He goes to the bank and he pays it off in full. And the man is forever freed from all obligation. Now, under the law, the Israelites were experiencing something like that. They had a tremendous debt of sin they could not pay. And once a year, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies. He sprinkled the blood of the goat on the mercy seat. It was something like a promissory note. It didn't pay the debt, but it did put payment off for another year. Year after year, the high priest repeated the sacrifice. Eventually, that rich relative... Who was that rich relative? God, the son. He could pay the price and he came from heaven. He shed his blood on Calvary and he paid the debt in full. The note no longer comes due again because it's paid in full once and for all. And the key word in relation to the law, taking away sin, remember, is failure. Only in Christ is there success. Only through Him can one come, uh, can have peace for a troubled conscience. Only through Him can one have forgiveness of a guilty, for a guilty soul and rest for a hopeless heart. If you look back at chapter four real quickly here, chapter four and verse three, for we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Then look at verse 10. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. And so we find here the failure of the law. That's number one. Number two, the fitness of the son. The fitness of the son. This has to do with his qualifications. Was he competent to sacrifice for sin? If he were offered at Calvary, would it suffice for the sins of the world of all the ages? And more importantly, would it suffice for you? Would it suffice for me? And the answer, of course, is yes. Two things would evidence that. Number one, it is seen in the sacrifice to be offered. Verse 5 and 6, chapter 10. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast hast no pleasure. We've already seen the failure of the law. Animal sacrifices, offerings could not take away sin, and he did not come to offer such 
It was not that God did not take pleasure in these Levitical offerings. Obviously, they were offered in obedience to his will and accordance to his word. But in that they failed to pay the sin, he took no pleasure in them in that sense. But for this reason, Christ became a man that he might have a physical body to offer as a sacrifice that would pay in full the price of sin. That body was prepared by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Virgin Mary uh, some 2,000 years ago. And prophetically, our Lord is made to say, a body hast thou prepared for me. Notice very carefully, God prepared the body. God prepared the body wasn't a natural conception. It was a miraculous. It was supernatural. His body itself was a miracle. That's why the modernists, they, modernists, they reject all the supernatural. And they say, no, uh, Jesus wasn't born of a virgin. You know, they, they reject the virgin birth. Well, they're in trouble. And so we see it in the sacrifice to be offered. Secondly, we it's seen in the statements of obedience. Verse 7. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written to me, of me to do thy will, O God. Above, when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin, thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, lo, I come in to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. This, uh, he's referring, of course, to the Old Testament when he says in the volume of the book, it is written of me. He was the only one qualified to fulfill these prophecies. The only one fit. The only one who could. Peter expressed it when he spoke to Cornelius in the household of of Acts chapter 10. He said, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. That entire seemingly endless host of prophecies in the Old Testament pointed unmistakably to him for their fulfillment and to him alone. How was it done? Well, the volume of the book declared it was only through his blood, the sacrifice of himself at Calvary. Now we saw in chapter 9, verse 26, it said, Now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Uh, This is the only way it can be accomplished. No human priest can grant forgiveness by saying, I absolve you of all your sins. That's not possible. You know, they that's some churches that try to do that. Uh, some some of you came out of that church where a priest says, I absolve you of all your sins. No, only our eternal high priest in the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, can utter, utter with meaning those words or give a power and effectiveness. The Jews of our Lord's day were not even right but they were 100% correct when they reasoned in Luke 5, 21. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their error, though, was in denying that Jesus Christ was God. And so Jesus Christ could forgive. His act of sacrifice was one of total, diso- uh, total obedience, perfect obedience. Now, twice here in our, in our text here, we've seen in verse 7 and verse 9, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. It required a sacrifice of perfect obedience to take away sin. It had to be a sinless offering to be acceptable in the sight of the Holy Father. One without spot, without blemish. It necessitated one with no sin upon it or within it. 
Notice, and think of his qualifications, he alone had the power to take away the first system and establish a second. As verse 9 declares, he taketh away the first that he may establish the second. He was the son of God with almighty power and authority as well as the son of man. Read it and believe it. That's what he did. The first was taken away. We're no longer under the law. The Levitical system and the priesthood with its multiplicity of, of uh, sacrifices has been found to be a failure and has been abolished forever. I wish I... Uh, I just saw a video. I just looked at it this morning of a friend who went to the Israel, just a, a friend, fellow pastor. Uh, he went there with some other pastors, and they did some research. But he, they sent back a video of the guide showing the tabernacle. What a wonderful picture that, that is. I wish I could show that to you. I wish I could go there and find out and see it for myself. I wish you could go there and see it for yourself. But we'd have a greater appreciation for it, wouldn't we? It's a wonderful thing. The failure of the law, the fitness of the Son, the finality of His sacrifice. Look at verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Look at verse 12. For this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Skip down to verse 14. For by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. Well, that's pretty plain. One sacrifice, one offering, forever. It was one offering. The Lord offered one sacrifice. Now, verse 11, I skipped that one. It says there, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which could never take away sin. The ministry was never finished. It was never accomplished. It was never done. It was never successful. It was never effective. And yet Christ, after had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. That's an indication that the work was done, complete. Now he's not coming back to earth again to offer it again. He will come back. He's promised he will come back, but he's not going to come back to sacrifice himself again. He said, it is finished. Not only one offering but one offering forever. Notice, once for all, forever, described in these verses. By the way, some preachers look at, like to look at more so-called up-to-date translations to kind of help them explain the meaning of verses. For ex- example, both the NIV and the NASB, the New American Standard Version uh, Bible, translate this for all time. Ha. Huh. Well, that's weak. Instead of saying forever, they say for all time. And that, my friend, is very weak because it is more than for all time. It's forever. It's for eternity. I like our translation on that. It's another reason why we need to be careful about using the modern translations. That's why I'm going to stay with God's word preserved in the English language, the King James Version. The sacrifice of Christ made on Calvary doesn't just last six months for the time of 12 months or for 12 years. No, it's forever. Not for all time. 
Time is going to come to an end someday. How many sins of yours do you think this omniscient God knew about when he died in your place at Calvary's cross? How many of your future sins, none of which you have ever committed yet, do you think he knew about when he agreed to save you? It's either once for all salvation or not at all salvation. There isn't any middle ground. Well, there's the failure of the law, the fitness of the law, the finality of his sacrifice, and then there's the fulfillment of the promise. The law failed. The son proved he was qualified. His sacrifice was a one-time, forever sacrifice. And so God the Holy Spirit witnesses to its finality. The witness of the, the, witness of the Holy Spirit. There we go. Verse 15. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us for after that he had said before. Now he's quoting kind of gets the gist of what the Holy Spirit said in Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. By this shall be the covenant that I shall I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now, in the previous two verses, this covenant was called a new covenant. One distinguished from the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's it. And our text describes the new covenant. He promised to make the uh, with the house of Israel. But notice it's not only the witness of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit's promise is fulfilled in verse 16. It says, This is the covenant that the destitute afflicted torment. I skipped the page. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds. Will I write them in their sins and iniquities? Will I remember no more? Verse 18, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The Holy Spirit's promise was fulfilled in two ways. The first is the law was written in the heart and the mind. And when God writes his law into a person's heart and mind, that individual will want to do right. Sin will be grievous to them. Certainly goes against any suggestion that security of of a child of God means, you know, sin all you want and you'll still be safe. No. God's not going to let you do that. He's going to chasten you. No, one with God's law written in his heart and mind will not sin. Someone who says that argument needs to uh, give diligence to make his calling and election sure. He wants to go out and sin wildly. He needs to question whether or not he has ever really been saved. Apparently he doesn't have the kind of salvation the Son of God makes available, the kind that makes men holy. And then the second aspect of the promise fulfillment lies in the fact in verse 17 here, it expresses it, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. How God delights in forgiving sin. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Psalm 103, verse 11 and 12, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. 
Somebody might be able to tell you the distance from the North Pole to the South Pole, right? They could probably tell you that. It might be an approximate uh, answer, but they could probably give you the distance from the North Pole to the South Pole. Uh, why don't you boys measure that one of these days for me? Of course, the distance between East and West, Where how you do that? Well, let's go East and we'll find West. <laughs> You keep going east and you keep going east. Let's go west and we'll go, you know. Uh, when one starts east, he continues forever, never reaches the west. The same is true from going east to west. And yet, that is how God, far God has removed our sins. And that's good enough for me. I wonder, is it good enough for you? No wonder the writer is able to conclude this section with much assurance. Again, look at verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. There's nothing you need to do to provide a sacrifice for sin. We're not going to sacrifice anything on this table this, this afternoon. But we're going to partake of the bread and the cup. Rep- represents Christ once and for all sacrifice. And we're going to remember that and thank God for it. I think it was uh, uh, Horatius Bonar put it this way, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. Another's life, another's death, I stake my whole eternity. Have you received that one man once and for all salvation? If not, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As we bow our heads and I ask the men to come and prepare uh, for the...